Hello! We've arrived at the final episode for the season. I know, so sad. Lucky for you all, our final guest was worth the wait. His name is Vic Barrett, and he has been a climate activist since he was 14. He does many things, but what he's perhaps best known for is his lawsuit against the U.S. government. He and 20 other young people are suing the American government because, well, their futures are on the line. And the government has failed to take adequate action to ensure that these young people have a safe future at all. While policy can sound real boring, it's one of the only mechanisms that can actually create space for the types of infrastructural change necessary to meet climate change and defeat it. Vic wouldn't describe himself this way, but a lot of his work ultimately comes down to pushing policymakers to act. His weapon of choice? Stories. His story in particular. This kind of emotional work isn't easy. Vic and I get into all this. The highs, the lows, the past, the future. He's got a whole lifetime ahead of him, and he's still figuring it all out. Probably a lot like you. So remember, you're not alone in trying to find your place... That happens to all of us. Yes, even the pros. This is the Architectures of Planetary Wellbeing podcast. I'm your host, Yesenia Funes. In 2015, 21 young people in America decided to sue the U.S. government for causing climate change. Their argument? The government is violating their constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property. Vic Barrett, a climate activist who's been in the fight since he was 14, is now 23 and one of the plaintiffs in that lawsuit. Vic, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. So excited to be here. So excited to have you with us. Um, Was hoping that, you know, you might be able to just introduce yourself and your work and share with folks a little bit about how you became a climate activist and ended up in this historic lawsuit um, that the U.S. government now faces. Yeah, so... um... Like I said, I'm Vic. I'm 23. I've been doing this work since I was 14, so nine years now. A lot of the way that I got into climate justice work, um, or talking about the climate in general, I grew up in a really conservative, very white part of upstate New York until I was about 13 years old. And because of that experience growing up in like a place that was so drastically different than the identities I hold. Um, I'm Afro-Indigenous, I'm Afro-Latino, I'm queer, um, I'm a dark-skinned Black person. And, you know, 98% white, rural, apple farming New York was not uh, necessarily reflective of those identities. So I I learned a lot about um, how people are treated when they're different. And I learned a lot about fairness. And it just became a value I really cared about, like fairness and justice and just the way that we treat each other in general. So when I finally left school in upstate and I started going to school in the city, I was kind of just in the West Village of the city, which is like a stark, stark contrast (laughs) from conservative uh, upstate New York. It was basically like the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of- Very gay, very gay West Village. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In terms of people around and what they looked like and what they cared about and everything. So I kind of just wanted to get closer to- that like lived experience and way of being. Um, and in high school, with these after school programs came to us um, that were about social justice and about human rights. 
And yeah, I was just looking for something to do after school. I was always one of those kids that was like, I lived the furthest and I was the last person to ever go home uh, just because I was always doing after school activities, trying to be around people and stuff. Um, I was lucky enough to join this organization, Global Kids, that talked a lot about climate change but in the context of climate justice um, and kind of like gave me this opportunity. Climate change in my head was this like really science-y STEM thing, something I never really like did well at. Um, But we learned about it in this context of like, oh, black and brown people, a lot of the identities that I am are disproportionately impacted by this issue that they do less to contribute to. And like my family in Honduras is affected by this issue that they've done less to contribute to. And I guess in the vein of me caring a bunch about justice, um, it ended up with me caring a lot about climate justice and learning a lot about climate justice because I saw it kind of as this uh, kind of umbrella issue of like all the things that I was already caring about and it touched on a lot of the things that I was already concerned about. And I also noticed there wasn't a lot of people who looked like me who were talking about it. And I figured if there were, maybe folks would understand it a little bit more. Yeah, what what you're saying really resonates with me because I also had sort of similar, that's like sort of the similar reasons why I got attracted to to climate justice work and and covering issues around climate justice because, yeah, there's this sort of narrative of it being about science and, um, you know, the greenhouse effect, right? There's like all these really jargony terms that are used to talk about climate change. And for a long time, the narrative missed... uh, the human element, you know, and the, and the inequity element. Um, so that really, really resonated with me. Uh, you're focused a lot, though, on efforts to to sort of transform policy, change policy. That's sort of at the heart, right, of this lawsuit is to try to get the U.S. government to take um, actual efforts you know, at the policy level to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to do something about climate change rather than making the problem worse. Why did you gravitate toward this sort of climate work? And I know that in our previous conversations, like you don't, you haven't really thought of it. Um, you haven't really thought of your own work as policy related. Um, but, but I'm curious to sort of hear a little bit about this focus on pushing leaders mm. to act. Yeah, absolutely. I think that a lot of where that inspiration came from is, you know, so much of politics, the politics that leads to policy is in like rhetoric and jargon and also in like a kind of hidden way behind all the <laughs> the abstract stuff is about human beings and about stories and about what folks care about. Yes. And I figured if we could frame climate change as outside of these emissions to what infrastructure we're building to just, if we could frame it outside of all these things that are numbers and inhuman and frame it in a way that is absolutely human, which is what usually gets voters to act, what gets constituents to act, what gets government to move, um, that there was a better chance that climate change could become a focus of politicians and something that they wanted to talk about because politicians, a lot of times and policy, a lot of times relies on us not paying attention or understanding who it's going to impact or what it does at the end of the day. But if I'm out there constantly giving a narrative that explains how it impacts so many people on the day to day um, and how it actually has to do with lived experience and quality of life, then there's a better chance that politicians and policymakers have to feel accountable to those narratives. Um, People it's, it's easier to, 
it's easier to pretend that you can't do anything when you're giving folks abstract facts and numbers that they don't actually understand. It's harder to act like you don't have to do anything if you're letting people, if, if the public is informed of the fact that this is a day-to-day issue in so many people's lives and it, impl- it, it implicates itself on, in so much more than what folks figure it does. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess like to me, building that understanding amongst the public is like been a way that I've, and, and amongst politicians and amongst, and amongst um, policymakers is a way to kind of force them to have to answer to the fact that they're dealing with a human issue and not just um, an issue that people can let fall to the wayside. Yeah, yeah. I, it feels like empathy is a big cornerstone of your work and bringing forth these stories and in shaping public understanding and shaping the understanding of decision makers. How do we shape policy with empathy and concepts of care, rest, love? Um, how do you incorporate this into your storytelling work? Yeah, I think that um, the way that I, I try to do that is definitely by, one, making it clear that I, I do have some standard of believing that changing policy or changing the stance of the government actually does have implications on people's lives, even though a lot of times it feels very, very distant or it can feel very, very easy to give up on those systems as being any sort of um, answer to a lot of the things that are going on. But I think that as we see climate disaster become more real and real every day, it's more stories that point to the fact that the U.S. federal government has to be taking this seriously. And not that local governments, state governments have to be taking this issue seriously. Um, Hurricane Sandy, for example, like what I first got engaged with, the New York state government, the New York city government could not ignore the fact that people were being completely displaced from their homes. And a lot of those people absolutely looked the same and had a similar relationship to the government. Um, and were mostly black and brown people mm-hmm. were mostly low income folks. Those are like the bottom line facts that you can't ignore. And you also can't ignore that even if those are constituencies that often aren't listened to, they still make up a massive amount of the people who have decision-making power in terms of who they go vote for or if they want to be informed on who they can go vote for. It's it's significant. So like doing, uh, implementing that into how we address a policy, I think it's also kind of new for some politicians. Like I always talk about when I was younger going to city council members' offices, I don't think they expected, you know, a bunch of young black and brown kids from around New York City I'm going to all different types of schools to be coming in with folders with facts and like data and information on how our communities could legitimately be better if they had if they actually listened to us. Um, So it kind of like changes the playing field a little bit when um, these decision makers realize you're just as informed, if not more informed than they are, because they've got to like kind of have this luxury of being uninformed and just looking for votes every uh, upcoming election season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that is a big part of what um, pushes them, right? And we see folks getting, taking all the action when um, midterms or, you know, November <laughs> rolls around. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's unfortunate, but uh, that's where strategy comes in, right? Um, yeah. You know, this work is hard though, right? Like sharing these stories, whether they're yours or stories of others, 
um, confronting the data and the the scientific reality of what we face. Like this is hard work and it's em- emotionally taxing. I think that folks who don't work on climate change really struggle to understand, um, yeah, how intense it can be for those of us who are like in this all the time. How do you take care of yourself, Vic, um, and find rest in this practice? Yeah, I think that a lot of the ways that I take care of myself, honestly, it's, I think a lot of it, first of all, has to do with in this movement, like, and that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of for as long as I have been. I feel like if if you, when you start to really get to know people, there's kind of these built-in mechanisms for taking care of yourself where it's like my life at home when I'm just at home playing PlayStation and like cuddling with my cat and, you know, <laughs> like taking my roommate's dog on dog on walks sometimes like that, that life can feel very separate than, you know, being in Glasgow or deciding if I'm going to go all the way to Egypt or being in DC for a week doing whatever I am, you know, that it could be easy for those things to feel really separate, but also when the young people that I get to meet, um, on these, like the young people that I get to relate to of having this kind of bizarre lived experience of being an advocate in so many ways, just hit me up on a regular Tuesday and ask how I'm doing. Um, I think that movement care that's really strongly built into the climate movement and also just like, especially amongst the younger people in the climate movement, um, that's like such an important part of it all. You know, if I was, if I had to travel to like these abstract places where I knew things might not actually make a difference, it would be way more difficult if I didn't know I was going to see some people that I consider my best friends there, even if we only see each other once or twice a year. Um, And also I think that I find a lot of the ways that I take care of myself or find rest is just in realizing that it's not like that it's always going to be there. Yeah. You know, that took me a long time. Um, that took me a really long time to realize I did not need to be doing everything and be everywhere to in order to, and that the whole weight of changing the world wasn't on the shoulders as if I, of if I was just too exhausted to be someplace or not. Right. I think that also comes into that movement care, just knowing that we're all holding it down and that if I need to spend two months just like being Vic, living in Madison, Wisconsin, and doing what I do there—that there's not the whole world isn't going to end, or nothing's going to fall apart because there's other there's other people on our team and other people on our side. So I feel like I find a, like weirdly enough, I find a lot of the f- feelings that I can give myself care and feelings that I can take rest in inside the movement and inside how strong it is. Yeah, it sounds like community is, is an important um, element. Of, of finding that rest for you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I, it's funny because I never know if I, that whole introvert extrovert thing. I still never have a total <laughs> grasp on, but I know that, um, I know that community is really important to me. If anything, I feel best when I'm around other people, no matter what, I just feel, <laughs> I feel great when I'm around other people um, and get to kind of have that human experience of like, you know, this is this is a lived experience that we all share and that we're all trying to do our certain parts to preserve. And there's all things that we particularly care about that we're like trying to protect at the end of the day. And also sometimes we could just be really casual and be young people and hang out. Um, yeah, com- community has always been really important to me. Just being around other folks and trying to understand them 
Um, and also just giving myself a break on understanding myself by uh, kind of surrounding myself by the people that I can. For sure. I mean, I love the just like that that element of hanging out. I, I don't know. For me, it feels like, you know, people have like, these really radical and gorgeous um, and dreamy like ways of talking about rest, you know, like, oh, I'll go and I'll take a, a soak <laughs> in the bath and I'll get a massage. And I'm like, yo, I just want to sit on the couch. Like, I just want to yeah. play some things. Like, I just want to, you know enjoy my 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 vices you know <laughs> absolutely and just relax and like tune out um and so that idea of hanging out really like that's it for me that's that's my rest <laughs> yeah that's what's so funny too I like people always I always get asked the question at least like what do you do in your free time and it's funny because I feel like I hear a lot of people answer like I like to go on hikes or rock climbing or camping and stuff. And I was like, that all still kind of sounds like work. (laughs) 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 Like, I don't know. I I, like literally my free time, what I do in my free time is like, I have TV shows I really like. I play GTA. I I love some GTA. (laughs) (laughs) I play my PlayStation. Like I cuddle with my cat. I like, I have a big thing of like, I watch, I could watch YouTube forever. Like, I don't know. I just do regular people things. Like, I, nothing, nothing that crazy. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's also worth mentioning and reminding folks, like, you're 23, right? Like, you are, yeah. I mean, we're, we're both pretty young in this call. But, like, there's things that you still deserve to to enjoy, right? And to find that joy. And for, for a lot of us, joy is as simple as video games or our cats. Yeah. And I never didn't it? know if... I never know if people understand me when I'm saying it, but like a lot, sometimes I, I really am just like, I'm a very regular 23 year old boy. Like, <laughs> I, yeah, you know, whatever perfect like Pinterest apartment you might be imagining or whatever is just doesn't exist. <laughs> like, I'm just, <laughs> I, I really am just, um, I joke, I really am just a kid. And also doing this for so long, there's, yeah, I do try to give myself the grace of like, Sometimes I do really boring things because since I was like, you know, 15, 16, 17, I didn't really get the chance to do that. I like had to miss AP tests to be at the World Economic Forum or like I missed my senior or my one of my senior field trips to speak at the UN. Like the, right now is me reclaiming some of That's my right. like my, you know, just being young and not having something and not having anything to do sometimes you deserve that you deserve that i want to talk about um talk a bit more about this lawsuit though because it's just it's monumental right what y'all are doing with this lawsuit juliana versus united states it's demanding that the u.s government take action how is that going and you know, what role do you think the courts play in holding policymakers accountable and, um, you know, channeling the public's uh, human rights? Yeah, for sure. The lawsuit is one of those things that, like, you know, it's not like you could ever at one point in your life forget that you sued the U.S. federal government, I suppose. But, um, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's so pivotal to, like, everything that I've been able to do and just, you know, my existence in the climate movement at this, in this moment. And the lawsuit's been like so pivotal to my experience throughout the movement. Like I joined the lawsuit in August of 2015 
just a couple months before I also got the opportunity to go to COP21. So it was like all in that year, a lot kicked off. Yeah. And and just to clarify, COP21, that's when the Paris Agreement was signed. That was one of the most like key cops ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was in Paris. Uh, my mom was kind of weary of what I always have to give my mom props because she let me go to Paris, like just a couple weeks after the really unfortunate attacks that happened there. But I was like, mom, I need to go to this climate conference. <laughs> yeah. Gotta save the world. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so the lawsuit, um, right now in the lawsuit, we are, in a place where we're trying to file a motion to amend. So we want to amend our argument so that the relief, so um, every court case needs to have a relief that you're asking for. We're trying to have our relief be a declaratory relief. So very, very similar um, to Brown versus Board of Education, where you know we're not asking the court system to implement any certain policy or even tell the judicial or executive branch to implement any policy, but instead to make the declaration and the assertion that a livable climate system um, is necessary for the constitutionally protected rights of life, liberty, and property. And and just to clarify, for those who might not be familiar, we might have some listeners outside of the U.S. Brown versus Ed is the lawsuit, is a decision that desegregated U.S. schools. Yeah, so Brown versus Board of Education was the decision that came down from um, the federal court saying that it was unlawful to have segregated schools. And once the court system made that declaration, it was up to the executive branch and legislative branch and states to own up to that declaration, um, no matter what, whatever way that they were capable of doing so. And it led to a lot of pivotal moments in U.S. history in terms of uh Black students being able to go to white schools and fully integrating schools. Uh, And that was just based on a declaration by the court. So that's what we're looking for in our case, too. Um, And we're lucky enough that we've had like some really precedent setting decisions from federal court, uh, from federal judges in our case, um, already asserting that the right to a stable climate is integral to having life, liberty, and health. And we've had a lot of precedent-setting decisions. Um, But this is what we're asking for, for our actual relief and what we're looking for them at the end of the day. And it's really interesting, and it's been like a wild journey to go through because when we first started suing the federal government, like I started this lawsuit, we started this lawsuit under the Obama administration. It's gone to the Trump administration. It's back with the Biden administration So it does speak to the fact that it's not a completely partisan issue. It's an issue of the U.S. federal government um, taking direct action uh, to still perpetuate and subsidize and support a fossil fuel energy system, despite everything they've known that says it could be catastrophic for the livelihoods of future generations. And, you know, with a federal decision affirming that, there's this also this awesome opportunity for, for some, like, I feel like for some reason, infrastructure has become somewhat partisan when really it's just like, (laughs) we just want navigable cities and like a environment that people can actually like navigate through in an easy way. And I think a lot of Lately, it's a lot of, oh, big cities are the ones who are caring all about this infrastructure. But if we were actually to like change infrastructure on a national level, it would change the entire culture of the United yeah. States. Um, and not necessarily better for one person than another, but as as a whole. Um, right. And so I think that's what's really, really exciting about 
the idea of prioritizing, you know, even if people don't want to talk about it, is like green infrastructure or prioritizing um, climate resiliency. It still is just making cities better, uh, making mm-hmm. towns better, making the way that we can coexist better. Um, so, yeah, that, that's an exciting portion of it for sure. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about fewer cars, talking about mm-hmm. mass transit, more trains, cleaner air. You know, there's all these benefits that um, just cannot be uh, underestimated in terms of what they mean for folks, like at an individual level, at a community level, um, the economic benefits that come with cleaner air, healthier people. There's just so much wrapped up, wrapped up in all this that makes this case just so, so exciting. Um, I know though that these institutional spaces, they have their limitations, right? Like the courts are not perfect. You know, the legislative branch is not perfect. And this is where your uh, storytelling, I think, is a key tool for you, right? Can you share a little bit more about um, the role that storytelling plays here, especially um, to sort of counteract the limitations that exist within these institutional spaces? Yeah, for sure. I definitely always try to at least have the chance to speak to the reason, you know, as like a young Black man, like it would be, at least in my opinion, be a little naive for me to stand up anywhere and be like the courts are the entire answer to everything that I'm looking for. And I completely and fully trust them to make the best decisions. Um, But yeah, I, I think that that's where the storytelling comes in for sure. And that's why I feel appreciative of our court case, at least because there's 21 plaintiffs and each one has like an incredibly unique story to tell. And that's what makes up our court case. Um, Whether that's Levi, who um, is 13 years old now, was eight when we started the case and lives Ah. in, um, yeah, (laughs) he's been, (laughs) yeah, he's been seeing the government for like a whole, like, quarter a third of his life at this point um but he he was on satellite island off the coast of florida that was like really rampaged by a lot of the hurricanes that they were having or Jaden, who lived in rain louisiana when they were having hundred year floods what seemed like every other day um or you know just a lot of our plaintiffs have such like distinct unique and like distinct, unique lived experiences with climate change and being able to tell those stories is how we prove like the fact that people's lives are changing. And I think that's how it kind of got me into storytelling as a tool. Um, Just realizing, you know, like what might be my lived experience isn't necessarily like an obvious, it it, it doesn't necessarily make the the connections that are obvious to me between my lived experience and climate change and fairness and justice isn't necessarily that explicit to everyone else. And I guess like getting that, um, like it's the way I learned how it works as a tool was, you know, after telling my story or after explaining why it mattered, having people approach me and say, you know, that's something that I never considered, uh, I think was a big, big motivator to be like, oh, well, that means I need to be telling as many people this as possible. Because if they've never even just considered this, you know, what seems like the obvious to me that certain people end up getting more like are more likely to be disenfranchised or certain people are basically used as shields against um, the inconveniences of society, like flooding and natural disaster. If that's not a clear narrative to as many people as I thought it would be, like I need as many people as I know for that to be a clear narrative so that they they care more. Mm. You know, I think that there's um, 
always been this conversation around climate change where a lot of people look at it and they're like, oh, that's a distant issue. That's not impacting me right now. That's something we have time to work on. Whereas if you like belong to certain identities or have certain lived experiences or of a certain age and where your whole community has changed right in front of your eyes, like, you know that this is something we need to be talking about right right now. You know, there's some people who still hear nine years, eight years or whatever from the IPCC and think that means a world of time when at the same time there's already whole communities, cultures that have um, relocated, have had to change their entire way of living in order to adapt to a changing world. So I think like the more that we tell that story, the more that politicians and like the more that even in places like COP, where, you know, they've been having COP for 27 years now, right? Wow. <laughs> um, like, what have we actually seen change? But I think in the last few years, or at least since I've started to be, like, pulled into the the ecosystem that is COP, is, like, as long as we keep talking about people's lived experiences, as long as we talk, keep talking about what it's going to take for certain folks to stay alive, they have no choice but to acknowledge it. Even if they acknowledge it in a way we like or don't, at least it's something they can't ignore anymore. Yeah. And and this feels so urgent. I think this tool of storytelling and the perspective you share, right, around bringing in people who maybe don't understand that lived experience, who haven't been exposed to enough people with that lived experience. I'm talking specifically, you know, to keep it real, like white people who are <laughs> yeah. voting for Trump and voting for conservative Republicans without understanding the ramifications of um you know, these poly- their, their decisions, really. And there's, you know, I think we're living in this period of polarization that's really scary, right? Like folks are really gravitating toward these different um, politics and the impacts are climate inaction. I mean, climate inaction is a result of that, right? And I think that this point you make around bringing in people who um, didn't know uh, or understand your lived experience and using your lived experience to bring them in and understand the urgency of climate change is just so needed right now um, to try to bridge uh, this gap that I think is is uh, building right now in our society, this sort of like fissure um, that we're witnessing um, that at least in the U.S. is quite terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, beyond, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I, was, I don't know. I like to hope that some of these people's minds can be changed, you know, and um, maybe hearing about experiences like yours, um, lifetimes like yours and mine, you know, being black and brown queer people in America, uh, there's always the hope that our stories can change people's minds and hearts so that they can care about us, <laughs> vote yeah. with our well-being in mind. Um, how yeah, is- which is also rough in its own way to like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, to get into that. And I kind of want to hear a little bit about that, Vic, you know, like sharing your own story. Like how, I mean, what's that like for you? Um, you know, having to like get it, get personal and talk about your identity, um, because you have all these layers of identity too, that I know, um, was a bit of a struggle for you to, to grapple with at some point. Yeah, (laughs) having like layered identities, especially coming up like younger, was always super hard being first generation, being Afro-Indigenous, being Afro-Latino, being queer. It it just, at some points, it just felt like too much, you know, because the the world in so many ways and to this point, I feel like just being who I am is so political or politicized. 
there's so many assumptions about that can be made about me or how I feel about things or the way I approach things just because of the identities I hold, because identity has become so politicized. Um, and so I think I definitely try to make a point of, I just approach everything from a really genuine, genuine place. I'm never really going out of my way to try to convince someone by talking about who I am or what I experience or the things that I care about. I'm just being as genuine as I can possibly be. Um, because I think that's something that everyone can relate to. You know, I don't always have the perfect words and I don't always have, I mean, I rarely even have like some master agenda. Um, I just want people to relate to the fact that I'm trying to exist the same way that they are. Um, and that that's kind of how I try to ap- approach speaking or approach environments I might be in that are uncomfortable or approach anything really. Um, sometimes I wonder if it's a defense mechanism I've developed of just trying to be really personable, but it's just like what has what worked for me. Um, and even just like, for example, my dad, for example, uh, is a really conservative Republican. Like, I didn't realize what it totally was at the time, but I grew up hearing things like Rush Limbaugh playing in the car. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even know who that was until I was older. And I was like, oh, like I heard his voice. I was like, this is the guy that was playing in the car when I was younger. But but I think that that lived experience is, especially having somebody close in my life who... um, maybe doesn't relate to me value-wise on so many things. I know we relate to each other by like caring about each other. And so I think that's kind of just what I try to tap into with everyone that I can. And um, I have noticed, like, like I said, when I first got involved in the climate movement, it's not like there was a bunch of like young, dark-skinned, queer, black people who were like taking up much space and if anything, when I was trying to talk to my friends that like did fit those demographics about climate, it was very fairly like, why is that the space you would put yourself in? <laughs> um, but like over time, I've been able to see it pay off in just in terms of helping people build understanding of the fact that this is an issue that impacts absolutely every single one of us. Like if you're if your version of a climate movement is one where you're just seeing like white Ivy League college students who worked on one divestment campaign, then you're not you're not you're not seeing the full scope of what the issue even is in the first place and who it impacts. Um, and so I think a lot of my work has been like a willingness on my part, also just because I'm curious in that way, to let myself kind of try to be an example of the fact that the climate that the climate crisis um, is multifaceted and therefore the climate movement has to be too. Um, and, you know, there's a lot I could say about, you know, what, what that's done for me or how that's felt, but everything about it, like at the end of the day has felt like my country, what could be like my best contribution to um, trying to get people to understand this crisis in a more wholehearted, full picture way. Um, you know, like the reason that black, um, Latino first generation trend, the reason that all of us need to be in the climate space is because folks need to realize that divesting from fossil fuels or fossil fuel infrastructure 
collapsing, at least to me, is like just the start of a world that I, a better world that I want to see. Yes. Yes. Um, Tell me about this world you want to see. What do you imagine when you envision it? Yeah, I imagine a world that prioritizes way less um, short-term gratification and prioritizes way more the people that we've been super willing to let fall to the wayside in order to achieve some goal that doesn't feel like it benefits me or the people I care about in terms of, you know, if it's growing the U.S. economy or just growing one billionaire's like pockets. Um, That's like, that I, I want to see a world that's the opposite of that. And I want to see a world where the police aren't funded in the way they are, like a world where I don't go home and see certain things on the news or haven't been seeing certain things on the news since I was 14 years old, 15 years old. Um, I think it's, it's, it's understanding that like, to me, a world that doesn't have fossil fuels also has to be a world where like, there's not, Honduran kids who are trying to cross the border living in cages. There's not people who look like me being gunned down in the street. There's not um, trans people being attacked on the daily. Like those, those worlds all overlap for me. It's not just this one image of, you know, like we get rid of fossil fuels. And so then I can have a good time hiking (laughs) with my white family and wherever, you know, I don't know. Like, like it has to be a, like the, the, um, addressing climate change is just addressing a symptom of all these way, way larger, like and insidious issues that we're already facing that tend to disproportionately impact certain people. Um, like yeah. yeah, to me, if we can address climate change and we can address all the reasons that it comes to be, we can address a lot of the reasons why white supremacy and the patriarchy. And like this rampant version of capitalism that we have going on exists. Um, so it's kind of just like this crux. It, the issue is like this crux of all these bigger issues that, like, I don't know, people wake up and have to be like hit in the face by every day, but still like try their best um, at overcoming. I think you really hit the nail on the head there, Vic, um, in reminding folks what you know, climate change is a symptom of, right? It's a symptom of capitalism, of colonialism. It's a symptom of these systems that have existed long before the water started rising and before wildfires began eating up entire communities. Um, And, you know, we can build a world that's powered by solar energy and clean power, but if it's still at the behest of um, vulnerable peoples, our peoples, um, then it's not really a world worth building at all. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you're our last guest on the show, Vic. I've been asking everyone to share an inspirational quote. I mean, everything you just said sounded quite inspirational, but I did <laughs> want to ask if you have a quote that you want to share that, you know, shines a light on the world you want to help build that sort of helps, um, I think, encapsulate what you just shared. Yeah, I can think of two right now. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, one is one that I say in the talks all the time. It's by Fannie Lou Hamer, who is like, um, an awesome civil rights activist, black woman who like did a lot for a time in the civil rights movement. But she, she's the one who originated the quote, nobody's free until everybody's free. Mm. Um, and I feel like, like a lot of what I've talked about or a lot of what I try to build understanding on is people realizing that you know, no matter what comfort they walk through in the day to day, like they're not living in a free society either, as long as other people are, you know, 
grasping at anything in order to get what's theirs and what's fair. Thank you for sharing that with us, Vic. Well, that's all I've got today. But uh, Vic, thank you again for for being with us, for your vulnerability, your honesty, um, and for just giving you know our, our listeners a little a little hint of the powerful work you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me. I loved all the questions. And it's always nice to get to ruminate on all the big things, you know, that remind us why we do everything in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good reminder. We need it. (laughs) Architectures of Planetary Wellbeing is a podcast of revisions, a media initiative supported by REARC Institute, a philanthropic organization committed to supporting architectures of planetary well-being. For more information on REARC, please visit www.rearc.institute. This season is hosted by Yesenia Funes. For more information on her work, you can follow her online at YesFun, Y-E-S-S-F-U-N, and her work, The Front Lines, at Atmos Magazine. This podcast is produced by Mina Kwan and Andy Christians. Music by In Atlas.